Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, we speak to Graham McDermott. He is the Chief Data Officer at Addison Lee in the UK. In this conversation, you'll hear about Graham's background in actuarial science, his interest and work in data warehousing and and GIS systems. He speaks about his time at the Automobile Association in the UK, or AA. He spent about 16 years there doing several heads of data and heads of information management roles. He tells us about why data work needs to start with business problems, business questions. We talk about the modern styles of working in data, how to do the work, enabling self-service analytics. We speak about data governance and data strategy. It's a really great episode and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe Flores and today I'm speaking with Graham McDermott. How are you doing, mate? I'm very well, thank you. It's good to speak to you. You too. Thanks for making the time. Been looking forward to speaking with you for quite a while. This is really good that we get the chance to do it. At the beginning of the interviews, I always like to ask people, can you give us an overview of your career to date and what have been the the main parts of your journey so far? So I am interested. I didn't really start my career in data per se. So I went to university and did this bizarre degree called actuarial science, which point most people reach for a dictionary or Google and go, what the hell is that? You're a really exciting and interesting person if you manage to qualify to be an actuary, because basically you can predict the likelihood of them crashing their car, losing all their money, dying, not having enough pension funds. And uh, yeah, that's about it. So at a party, no one is in the kitchen with you. You are in the kitchen on your own. (laughs) That's how it works. I went to university and I did this degree. It was all about maths and algorithms and investments and insurance. And uh, I quite enjoyed it. I started my career studying to be an actuary. But very quickly, I sort of got into writing algorithms and automation of what people in our office were doing with a pen and paper. And I've always been quite interested in computing. An uncle of mine introduced me to computing when I was about 11, gave me a ZX80, which he'd built himself out of a parts bit. You know, in those days, didn't come, computers didn't come assembled. You had to actually assemble them yourself. They actually charged you money and you had to put it together. And I think that got <laughs> me into computing and interest in computing. When I went to work, I remember being asked to sort of um, look at some calculations we were doing and see if I could come up with a better way of doing it. And I said, well, we'll use the computers to do it. So instead of us putting the details into the computer, we'll get people in the customer service area to put the information into the computer. It will work out the calculations that we used to do literally with a pen, a paper and a calculator. We're talking very complex calculations. And if you made one mistake, there was 
was no prizes for getting the wrong answer like it was at university or school. You had to get back to the beginning, recalculate everything, and suddenly you realised that a computer could do all this for you. So I sort of learnt about algorithms and, I suppose, automation. And then in my second job, one of the very first things they gave me was to look at was a data warehouse they built. This was my first sort of foray into data in sort of like the mid-90s. So they gave me two, two projects, one a data warehouse to finish, and the other one was playing around, and I use the word playing around, with GIS software and mapping. And again, I um, spent a few years working in insurance, both working in a data warehouse, which they told me they'd finished. When I had a look at it, there were massive great holes of data in it, all the things that they were trying to do and reconcile with their previous system, which they thought was rubbish until you asked them, somebody asked you to switch it off. Suddenly you reconcile it and realize it doesn't tally. And so you can't switch off your old system and you're still running your new system. And so I was charged with trying to make sure that the new system was fit for purpose. Meanwhile, I had this quite exciting and interesting thing with maps where once a year, the underwriter would get a load of maps. I'm not quite sure where he'd got them from. And he'd work out how to re-rate the home insurance policy. And he'd turn the maps page by page. And he'd look at the maps and he'd look at the different areas and the postcodes and geography and work out what rates we should be charging. And he only did this once a year because it'd take him three days all weekend. I realised afterwards, I think he had a little bit of a drink problem. So I'm not sure how good <laughs> the rates were towards the end of the three days. So anyway, I, um, with my sort of data and automation hat on, loaded up into the GIS system all of the data that we had on claims history. And then I made the system generate the maps. The slowest part was printing them because we only had a printer that could print 50 pages at a time before we had to put more paper in it. So the system was generating every post area in the UK, producing a map, printing it, going back and doing it again and looping round and round. So the problem is I set it off on Friday night because obviously we had to share the printer. So I had to do it when no one else was in the office. So what I then found is I had to then pop in on Saturday morning, put some more paper in the printer so they could carry on printing. But got to the end of the story and this guy said, this is amazing. You've literally put all of the information for every single post area and more than I could ever want in a completely automated way it takes you effectively five minutes to do it okay it takes 24 hours or 48 hours for the printer to actually run because it's a very small printer in those days but you suddenly realize that actually that was my early days in data and technology and using automation actuarial science which actually predates data science by 300 years so actuarial science was around in the 1700s and is about using data which is data on populations and death rates etc using algorithms to predict your likelihood etc so you'd argue it was early days data science just just didn't have any computing power. And perhaps as a group, they're quite slow sometimes to adopt technology. So I did all this stuff. And then I think I struggled to finish the exams. And in the late 90s, following a sort of change of company ownership, I moved companies and I decided to give up trying to finish my actuarial exams. And I found myself in the world of data, MI, analytics and insight. And then I literally spent 17 years. Some say that you get less for double murder or triple murder even in most countries, but I spent 17 years at the AA. I think I thought it was Alcoholics Anonymous, apparently, but it wasn't. It was automobile <laughs> association in the UK. So well-respected, well-known brand. And I suppose when someone says, well, how did you spend 17 years of your career in one company? That's because in that time I had, this is an excerpt from my leaving speech when I left. I did my leaving speech in numbers. Surely that's the only way you can do your leaving speech if you're a data person. And I went through, I had 16 bosses in 17 years and we changed ownership five times. And my role had grown and my team had gone from six to 35. So lots of things had changed, but actually 
my role and the role of my team and data become more and more important over the time. So part of the reason I stayed is actually I had a good job in a good company, did go through lots of bosses. I did move around location. I worked at six different offices in Southeast England. But actually, it was because data, which was, I suppose, by that point of a chosen career, had become more and more important. And I saw it under different ownerships. So if you know the history of the AA, it started as a members club, was owned by a FTSE 100, was owned by private equity, was owned by another private equity and then it did a accelerated float on the stock market completely different ownership structures completely different financial structures and actually also different approaches and perhaps beliefs in how important data was in everyday life and in making decisions so in the beginning i certainly didn't see data as being that important to them and probably by the time i left actually data was their lifeblood they were using lots of reporting and analytics and insight to make decisions not to back up a decision you've already made and say does the data actually back it up. No, it doesn't, right? We'll just ignore it then, please. Actually using data to make decisions in the first place. So data became more important. And I suppose when I left, part of the reason was I saw the opportunity to get into this role of chief data officer, which I think I'd reached sort of head of data, I'd reached insight and data director of the AA. But actually, I sort of wanted to properly be part of the C-suite. And maybe the only way to do that is actually to go to a slightly smaller company where it is easier perhaps to, to join in that group. I'd been approached a few times about chief data officers in the last couple of years. And I, in particular, in some cases, I've chosen not to proceed. In some cases, they've chosen not to proceed. But I never quite found the right combination of company, person to work for, and also the types of data function that I wanted to run. So I'm not a data scientist. I'm not an analytics purist. I'm not an MI purist. I'm a bit of a sort of combination. So I like a bit of governance. I like a bit of engineering. I like a bit of MI and I like a bit of, you know, so I like a bit of everything. So I tend to work best where I can run data functions that maybe have a sort of view of all of those bits without maybe being, you know, I don't have to be an expert in every single one. Danger, you're a jack of all trades and master of none, but have a reasonable knowledge and grasp of how those things work. I suppose most importantly, the bit I can perhaps help my team with is how do I help them understand what they're doing and how it translates to adding value to the company. So it could be anything from prioritizing a project for the data engineering team who might go, we'd rather do this because it's easier or it's quicker or it's something is nicer technology. And you're saying, yes, but the end game of what you're doing is we're going to use it for this, which is marketing, which is going to drive sales. So just trying to get them to, uh, to understand the end point. And when you've got conflicts, maybe trying to help them understand which one will add more value and why, therefore, they should do that one, which may not be the one they would have thought of because they would have had a different uh, method of choosing them. So, yes, I, I, my career is now, what, 25 plus years old. I didn't start in data, but I've very much definitely ended up in data. And strangely, if you look at the other career choices you can make in marketing and finance and HR that actually have proper professional qualifications, there aren't many for data people, really. I think there's a CDO qualification somewhere in the US, somebody uncovered recently in the universities. But other than that, there's very little. And you're just judged by, I suppose, experience. Exactly. Amazing journey that is so interesting. I'm keen to ask you a lot more about it. But first, tell me, what was it about statistics and actuarial science that grabbed you at the beginning? Why did you choose that path? 
I think because strictly it's the mathematics of finance. So I think I was interested in finance and I was interested in maths. When you join the two, the associated elements are car insurance. I was, I'm a bit of a car fanatic. I like cars. All of my family rely on me to help them at their insurance time to sort out the best quote. I do all their mystery shopping for them. I just send them the link and say, here it is. It's got all your details in it. They're, in fact, I know more about their claims history, convictions history and details than they do. I've probably got a little database somewhere, haven't I, that... Uh, so I think when I when I worked for an insurance company, I once checked my dad had declared as my date of birth when he'd been left to do it on his own. And he got not only to get the month wrong, day wrong, and the year wrong. I mean, he was out by a couple of years. I, mean, I think it was the it was the mass and the finance, and in particular insurance. Bizarrely, I think the story goes that I was at I was at A levels at school and there was a system called Cascade. I think that's what it's called. And basically it was a green screen computer system and you typed in what you liked and your sort of GCSEs and A-levels and what grades you've got. And then it would spit yeah. out jobs that it thought and, and professions that you should go into. So mine would obviously spit out accountant and it also spit out this thing called actuarial. So this is pre-Google days. Oh, actuarial, what is that? So I went and did a bit of research, which in those days involved going to the library, I think it was, and getting a book. Because if you asked anyone, everyone knew an accountant or a marketing, but no one knew an actuary. I mean, crikey, I just, just, no one moved in those circles. So I looked this thing up and, and the first thing it said is, you know, hyper-intelligent, really good with numbers and they get paid more than accountants I thought this is the job for me I'm going for this I think there was definitely a case of money and the maths and finance bit is what really actually got me but I think very quickly I got into the algorithms into the data and obviously the stats side behind actuarial is very heavy so all of the first modules you're doing as a student are all about statistics behind sort of insurance etc but also just general statistics and modeling etc and I remember meeting this guy who was our professor who was a retired actuary he was about 70 and he could still sit there and calculate these things from first principles almost without using a calculator it was really impressive thinking no when I get your age I I want to have people doing that for me he's standing up the front with a chalk and a blackboard actually demonstrating it from first principles going that's impressive and the other thing that was really interesting about your story was your I guess how much you leaned into automation early on so that you were looking for ways to bring in automation. Where did that come from? How did you get to that focus in automation? I honestly have no idea because actually if you look back through my career and talk to people who've worked with me, they'll say, yeah, Graham always wants to make sure that if you build it, not necessarily every single time, but a good way of spotting that this is something you're going to have to reproduce to make it reproducible the first time you build it, not someone comes to you and says, can you do that again? Oh, that's the biggest job in the world. And also I think I saw lots of people doing things with pen and paper because I suppose I was an early adopter as, as a computer geek. I saw it as a, I played games, but I also used it to write programs and do things which weren't just gaming. So I was about 14, 15, and my dad was doing a stock take for his business. And he asked me, said, oh, it's a real pain. All our stock numbers are out of order. And I don't know how to get our stock numbers in order. And what he meant was, obviously, stock numbers had come and gone, but he had a, he had a, a random list and needed to get me in order so they could work out where their stock was and stuff. And I sort of ended up writing a, I think it was an array in Quick Basic or something in order to sort a list of numbers of stocks, et cetera, for him. And I was really proud of myself. It took me like all night to write this thing, which today you just do with like not even one line of code, frankly, you know, sort of, you know, one statement or something. But I'd used it to do something which actually helped him out. So I didn't get it from him. I wouldn't say he was an efficiency type person. So I don't actually know why I just looked around, see, I call 
my inefficiencies and then look for ways to make those things go away. I suppose because I like to make my own job easier. If you make the mundane easier, then you have more time to spend on the more interesting. But I don't think it ever came from anywhere. I think you, know, you talked earlier about things you'd want to sort of tell others. When I see data analysts and data scientists growing up now, I see the really good ones who almost, they don't necessarily build the first time in a complete automation way, but they have a really good eye for going, I'm going to have to do this again, so I'm going to build this well. That's probably a throwaway, so I won't bother. I can just hack that together, and then if I ever come back to it, I might struggle, but I'm going to take my risk. Rather than somebody else, you might say, I'm not going to bother with any of that, and if you come back to me, I'm just going to sigh and groan and, and then probably leave because you didn't tell me that in the first place. It's like, well, I can't tell you that. That's going to happen, I'm afraid. I mean, I, I've been asked recently, well, not uh, my current job, my previous role, obviously, I haven't been at the AA for 17 years. Somebody asked me about something and said, this happened about eight years ago. Do you remember anything about what happened in that period in 2006? And I said, I do. And this is what I remember at the time. I said, actually, I've still got the emails in my archive. I can go back and find them in my archive and could find the previous explanations that were given at the time to explain a operational trading blip that occurred and the work that we did. I was the only person still there. Everyone else had changed jobs and moved on since then. But at least I could recollect it. I think somebody in my team once said to me, "Your Graham, your mind's like a database. And I said, yeah, that's fine as long as it doesn't fill up, run out of space and need constant defragging. But um, yeah, I think I've always had a good recollection for things. And hence, I think that plays into this thing about trying to make things efficient to make your own life easier as well as trying to make other people's lives easier. So it's a database with very good indexes. Yeah, it's in the cloud now. Though. That's the only reason it? it's um, I'm quite tall. So uh, yeah. <laughs> That's why you were there first. It was closer. Yeah, yeah I was there before, you know, Cloudera and uh, we all this Azure and everyone. And tell me, I found it so interesting that you came across data warehousing so early in your career. Obviously, that's data warehousing, I guess, as a principle has gone through such huge change over the years. How have you seen the role that data warehouses play in your job functions? How has that changed over the years throughout your career? Yeah, so it's, it's, in some ways, it's been a bit of a roller coaster because where I came from, I got into it, I think, and had the terminology because I'd actually been building databases for my actuarial algorithms and automations to work. I'd have a bit of data here and a bit of data there. And I suddenly, I didn't realize that actually I was starting to collect them together to keep them in a common place. And actually, I was in effect creating almost a form of a, of a data warehouse. It's only when I got to a company that had a lot of transactional data and they had had the foresight to build a data warehouse because they had lots of silos. It was very cumbersome, took a lot of time. And they did the very atypical thing, which was they built a prototype. They got in a third party. They tried to build it. They took about two years, forgot to update the business. And when they went, hey, we're finished, the business went, yeah, but we've moved on and we now need this data and that data and the other data. And so I think my early involvement taught me that you do have to do it quickly. You have to go from proof of concept to starting to deliver things quite quickly. So data warehouses of 10 years ago as a delivery mechanism cannot deliver in that way today. You just lose people along the way. Not least, people lose interest. People turn over. So then there's no one there who remembers why you're building this thing. I think you know the arrival of technology in the cloud and such that you can stand up what was in the old days, the, the biggest thing of a data warehouse often was going and procuring high hardware, going and procuring the software to build it in, getting some people to actually build it, and then showing them the data you had and them going, right, well, who understands it? No one. Okay, how on earth are we going to work out? So you spent a huge amount of time trying to get all this data ingested and sorted out and, 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 and to build a, a data warehouse.
house and everyone went everything's like everything's moved on and i think it's where the advancement in technology and cloud means that people can get going really quickly as long as you don't get going too quickly unstructured don't have a plan of where you're going because a comment i made recently has been you know data is a journey not a destination and i think in my early years i thought there truly was a destination of the perfect data warehouse you could have the perfect data warehouse and by that i mean all of the data from all of your silos will be in there it will be largely error free or at least you will know where the errors are it will be documented and i probably stayed at the aa for 17 years because i thought i could perfect the perfect data warehouse i think in reality i realized that actually you will always be launching products and services creating data it won't make sense to always put all of your data in the data warehouse on day one because how do you know whether it's valuable if you assume that the resources cost money so if, even if it's all cloud and it's all free supposedly it's open source things people's time cost money so should you build a feed of data to then go and analyze it well why don't you go and do the analysis first see if there's any value in it when joined with the rest of your data if there is right go and get your engineering team to plumb it in if there isn't forget it put it to one side i don't actually forget it, it's wrong term actually i think put it to one side and maybe revisit in a year or two's time because my experience has been i've worked with data sets which at the time didn't add anything and perhaps it was more the company didn't have necessary strategy to make use of it and then with times things changed and suddenly actually there was a big focus on that area we could say actually do you know what we know where the data is we did analysis before and we didn't discover value now let's go and do it again we can repeat the exercise quite quickly because we've got our learnings and we said do you know what actually the world's moved on there's a different demand for this data and to use the insight from it so actually we'll plumb that data feed in and yet we had looked at it sometimes every year for five years and one of them in particular and had not plumbed it into our warehouse because there's associated cost of people's time even though the warehouse was paid for and hardware and everything else there was people's time and there was other project priorities for which we would say there was greater value and i think that's where you're seeing you know some of the sort of data science coming through now where people are trying to get some data understand it do something with it and then once you've proven that someone still needs to engineer some sort of whether it's a data warehouse data lake call it what you like virtual data warehouse is the latest phrase but someone's got to have a repository or some data somewhere and someone's got to be looking after that not your data scientist or your data analyst because they'll get bored if that's what they're doing you know they don't want to be a librarian and put all the data in the right place that's not the best use of their skills that is so true and what do you see as the difference between a data warehouse a data lake and a virtual data warehouse Yeah, I think I sort of was brought up on the traditional data warehouse, which I saw as being, you know, very ordered, very structured, quite traditional in its approach for data models. Um, didn't mean it wasn't inflexible. I mean, we stretched and stretched the one we had at my previous company. But actually, when I got to Addison Lee, we phrased the R's. They didn't call it anything. They just said, oh, we've got this database. And I said, well, it's more like a data lake. And I said, the reason I call it that is because actually you've got your structured data from your booking system. You've got unstructured data coming from so we've got cloud data coming from all sorts of other services that we provide we've got external data coming from weather from events and things we've been running that are scraping off the internet so it's all coming in but they're not necessary it's not like it's not some grand logical model that joins everything together the weather data sits in its corner and the event data for you know events going on in the UK and the bookings data they might have their own schemas and understanding but they can sit in their own right the point being if you're an analyst you go to that place you'll see 500 tables you'll find the dictionary you can do a search and say well I'm looking for data on weather I'm looking for data on this or that and it will help you narrow down which tables of data you need to go and 
and understand. And we built not just the raw data, we have also sort of data mark aggregated views of it. So I suppose we've created something and what I'm seeing more is people creating morphing warehouse and lakes and then this sort of modern version of virtualization where you don't physically put it together. They can still be sitting in their different instances and they're brought together sometimes as required for you know the piece of analysis you're doing. So physically sit right together. I think it depends on what you're trying to do. So I think you should start from what is the business question you're trying to answer? Do you have the data? How do you need the data structured? Not go and build a warehouse, wait till that's done. Right, everyone's tired now and exhausted and budgets overrun. And also, you know, most often you know, data warehouse and data lakes have such a bad name to delivery. They most often change their name from conception to delivery. I mean, no offense, but I know you normally, when you have a baby, you might name it after it's born. But you don't normally give it a name when it's conceived and a different name when it's born. I mean, it just doesn't happen. But more often than not, for data warehouses and data lakes, they'll start with one name and they'll often go live with a different name because the old one maybe has got a tarnished image. If you look at the stats around the market, about whether it's two thirds or three quarters of these things fail, you know, that's been a very common statistic for a long, long time. And it depends who's saying it's failed. Is it the integrator? Is it the company? Because I think I've certainly experienced people trying to build them in-house and people using third parties. Third parties is great to give you that extra resource. The problem is they don't know your data, they don't know your business. And so they're applying a, a data model from industry rather than saying, actually, we understand your data and you're much better to blend them into your internal team and also use your internal people people to help build what they're going to be running in the future, arguably, rather than these people who are going to come in, build it, then walk away. I mean, it's like building a house, really. I mean, you, you someone else builds your house and you move in. And if you've had no input whatsoever, you're looking around going, why has he put the plugs there and the window and halfway down the wall or something? There might be a really good reason, but they're not there now to ask. And you maybe don't feel that you were involved at the time when they were building things. That's such a good point that people go through that journey then allows you to keep that knowledge and be able to refer to it as things change. You have the explanation. And I really like the point that you said around starting even the warehouse design, starting it with business problems. Well, actually, I wanted to ask you, how do you impart that to your teams and to the organizations that you're in in order to get everyone's mindset to get behind the, the business problems first and build appropriate solutions from there? I think it's really hard because the business want their question answered as quickly as possible to make a strategic decision or a trading decision that really care as to the hoops you've got to jump through to get them the answer. To them, you might be presenting something which is a very simple answer. It could be a PowerPoint deck. It could be a, an Excel spreadsheet. It could be just a Word document. It could be quite, to them, it's quite a simple outcome. But actually behind the scenes, you've got to have done quite a lot. Sometimes you can do things in approximations and do things with smaller amounts of data. And one of the pitfalls is people head off saying, no, no, I can't give you an answer until I've built this monolithic giant data warehouse rather than trying to build a bit and then add a bit and add a bit. But knowing what the full picture looks like, well, how do they get the full picture? I suppose that is by engaging the business folk, which I think is a, is a lot further on today than it was when I sort of, you know, first touched data warehouses 20 years ago, where there was IT people that weren't even in the same county as you, didn't talk the same language as you did. There were some business analysts in between that were writing 
writing documents that translated what you said you wanted to do, it disappeared off, a data warehouse came back, and there was nothing in between. Today, that's just so alien, you just wouldn't work. Well, I don't know, maybe there are some people still trying to work in that way, but I just don't think you work in that way. So for me, for example, last 15 plus years, I've had the engineering, data engineering team in my team. So they don't sit in IT. IT are only responsible for the underlying tin and hardware. They build to specifications of my team and other parts of the company. And I suppose I'm the business person over the top saying, but hang on, we need to be looking at this technology or we need to be looking at building it in a certain way, maybe, and giving them the business understanding, whilst they have a deep technology understanding in how they're going to build it, what level of robustness and alerting and all that sort of stuff. And I suppose also I challenge them on timing. So when they say it's four weeks, it's not about me saying I could do it quicker. Sometimes it's saying, actually, can you just take me through why it's going to take four weeks? And they'll have engineered in certain about solutions. You say, okay, this is something we're only going to use once a month. You don't need daily alerting because it only matters once a month. So you only need the alerting around the once a month. Oh, I didn't know that. And that's the sort of thing that you might get out if you wrote very detailed specifications. But this day and age, people don't want to write a very detailed specification. It's not like the old days where if you didn't write it down, you won't get it. Now, sprint, scrum methodology is iterate, iterate, iterate. Well, it's very hard to do that with data warehousing and data lakes and stuff to iterate. I think you still got to have a bit of a grand vision and know that each of your iterations and sprints are getting you towards that. And you're not making design decisions in sprint one or two that by sprint nine, you're going to go to no, we need to chuck this in the bin. Because if someone says that to you, you really know that you messed up somewhere between sprint two and seven, two and eight, because you've made some decisions that have just made them tear their hair out. And, and that's quite hard. You know, getting getting business people in the room and getting them to say, what is the questions you want to answer? How do you want to answer it? Sometimes the only way is always to show them, of course, a, some sort of proof of concept. The danger with that, of course, is that becomes live and they're off and running. They don't need the, the big grand solution any longer because they've got they've got something. You know, someone gives them Tableau, puts some data behind it, don't need a warehouse. What you do, you've still got to go and sort the data out. Tableau's just given you an instant gratification. Now you need to go and make sure that gratification is going to be there every time you want it. And how do you balance the two, the two sides, the instant gratification versus the, I guess, the more foundational strategic piece of work? I think it's, uh, it's really hard. I think um, I've always tried to keep back some time in my team so we don't quite go down to sort of project level where every resource is you know is allocated to sort of sprints and projects etc so trying to not just give them time give them projects which they are also setting their objectives which is for them to come up with things and those things are generally things that make maybe their own life easier make their colleagues life easier and make their customers life easier so years ago that would be things like you're always seeing this very atypical analysis request from a few different people actually i could give them that data set in a tool and they can just fill their boots don't need to ask me in future they can very safely analyze their data on their customers in that tool set without having to ask me what they will do then is answer their own questions but also come to you with more complicated questions so you buy yourself some time but it also means you're not doing all the little requests you're actually going to be doing the much bigger more complex requests it's a really hard thing to do it takes time it takes experience you you 
it's very hard for you to do it when your team is new and very inexperienced. When your team are got a cadence, you've got experience, actually taking 10, 15, 20% of their time to build this type of long-term or efficiency gain or strategic type data projects, which as I said, might be for you in your own team, might be for another internal team, or might be some sort of you know customer product, for example. But without someone actually physically asking you from above to do it, it's quite hard. You need them. You know, It's not just about me telling them, I've spotted this, I've spotted that. I need them to say, do you know what? I've spotted that we keep getting these requests for this, or we think it'd be really useful if we gave the customers that. What do you think? Good idea. Let's build a prototype. Let's get it out there quickly. Let's get some feedback, and then let's get them using it. I mean, you've got to be careful you don't build something that you think is brilliant and they think is a complete waste of time. I, I don't think I've ever come across that many. I'd say 80 90% of stuff we built has been a success. They've used it. There's a few things where it had it was flavor of the month. So it's had its time and actually maybe once they know how things work, they don't necessarily think they need to return to it. But if there's a sudden shift change in the business, so your business is suddenly, there's, uh, you know, has happened to the AA, a transaction, you get people unsettled, people moved around. Suddenly you've got Mr. Product Manager turning up saying, I've taken over product X. Can you tell me all about my customers? And we go, yeah, you go. Here's your self-serve module. Go and spend, you know, a few days looking through that and you can profile your customers over time by different factors and you've got a really good understanding and then sit down with us and ask me the sort of what are the questions that that, that didn't answer that you think you need to know and what are you going to do with it because you always have to apply that last bit which is you want a report of or a forecast or a chart and what are you going to do with it and you said it's urgent. I had one tonight. This is really urgent. And I read back and said, can you define really urgent? Because you haven't put a date. Everything I get is urgent can you, ASAP. Or So can you tell me what really urgent is? It's all actually by the 7th of November. I said, that's not really urgent. Really urgent is by tomorrow morning. I don't like to disappoint the person, but really urgent is not by the 7th of November. But maybe yes. they're, they're new and their expectations from dealing with internal data analytics departments are you email them, you hear nothing, you chase them. They say, that's, that's the biggest job in the world and they're going to take six months. It's like, okay, maybe I'm used to running teams that are more responsive or can take something and say, well, we don't have the perfect answer. Maybe we've got something that's near enough and that will do to answer the challenge that you've got. It's not like financial MI where the answer needs to be 12.263. It just needs to be 12. And last year it was 14. So it's gone down slightly. And this is why they don't need the, the necessarily the financial auditable robustness of some of the answers that uh, they're asking. Exactly right. And Tell me more about the self-service model that you've either used or built in the past in order to give the organization access to data. How have you gone about doing that, either in your current role or in previous roles? How has that been for you? I think um, it comes back to my sort of this philosophy around sort of automation and efficiency. So I've always had a desire to make people self-sufficient. So I, you know, I probably long before the digital revolution, I liked being self-sufficient. I liked being able to do things for myself because I can probably do things quicker than asking you to do it and then waiting for you to do it within reason. So I think my early career examples were more around self-service MI. So the ability to surface management information to people, which might be for today, last week last year but just giving them the ability to consume it whenever they want on whatever device they want particularly for whatever date period because that's the most common thing i've got this for last month can i have it for the last three months yes it's just changed the criteria rather than right i have to run a special report for you type approach because i think when i started in the probably the data industry and I, I sat next to a an mi team and they used to huff and puff every day that they got asked for variations on their mi that they produced this 
well, no one's ever told us they want a different date range or this. So, well, by this time, you know, tools existed where you could load all that data in and you'd have been able to report on any date range that they wanted to. So I think I've already seen that. And so when I started building an insight and analytics team in early 2000s, we were only a small team. And I think I realized very quickly that we were running about 40 products and services in the company. So there were about 25 product managers and service managers and marketing managers all over the place who come and ask you questions. And we had a team of six analysts covering all of that. So we very quickly built some capability where we would call it self-serve analytics. We never wanted to call it self-serve insight because I think insight is what an insight person does with analytics and delivers it to you with something insightful. I think if you really think I can give you self-serve insight, what so you can do it yourself, I think you can get some charts and some numbers. You could, you still got to derive the insight, which is what do you see, what do you observe and what should you do about it? That bit, I don't think you can necessarily automate. So we very much started on the self-serve analytics, which was more about just displaying their data to them. So that data could be their product. It could be customer numbers, profiles, retention, lifetime value, marketing segment they were in, all sorts of, and we had lots of external data so we could give them profiles of their customers by different demographic factors. So someone described it as if you're the marketing manager or the product manager, it was like drinking from a fire hose because we could actually give you so much information to give you a good understanding, not just now, but you could also look back within the system and see how is your customer profile or how is your churn rate changed over time? Because again, just telling them their churn rate was 70% or their churn rate was 5% doesn't mean anything if that was just month and this month was unusually high or low. So you needed to be able to show them trend lines, for example. So I think we started much more with self-serve analytics. And it's one of these things becomes a bit self-perpetuating because as soon as you've done one product, it's very easy to then build the next one and the next one. And the data set actually, assuming the data is all in one place, potentially in your data warehouse, actually you can suddenly produce 30 products in the same system very easily as soon as you've done one. And also, while some people say, oh, can I have it this way, can I have it pink, can I have it green? It's sort of a one size fits all. The, the interface has to be the interface and maybe the early adopters who get involved in it sort of define the look and feel. But some of the ones that we've built, you know, lasted for 10 plus years. And in fact, some people who moved on to other companies referred to some of the stuff we built and said, oh, I've heard that, you know, your team built this. Can you tell me about like uh, how you built it or your approach to it? It's like, right, that's 10 plus years ago. I wouldn't necessarily do it that way now. Or I wouldn't use that technology, but it's just the philosophy of gathering not your requirements, but understanding what they're asking for and finding ways to say, well, that takes an hour every time they ask for it. So my rule used to be a, a sort of 12-month payback. So if somebody said, this task takes me an hour a week, that's 52 hours a year, okay, so that's seven working days. If you can make an automation of that in less than seven working days, we should do it. If it's going to take you two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, then we have to seriously think about whether we should do it. I mean, I remember someone recently telling me very proudly they spent four weeks on and off fixing something, which I'm not joking, the manual effort was for like five minutes a month. When you did it once a month, when I sort of said, I showed them the calculation and said, look, I, I don't, I just need you to understand this, that I know we're going to get some learning from that for future things, but that thing that you automated literally is, okay, it's irritating, but it's five minutes a month. I can't have you spend four weeks on and off doing it. Well, I didn't really spend all four weeks. Okay, but you probably spent, looking at your weekly report, you probably spent six, seven days. It takes five yeah. minutes a month, an hour a year. Just do the maths. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I get your point. 
that's a really good rule though to have that year payback period i I really really like it and how about right now what tools do you or would you use to do self-service analytics in an organization it's interesting so my sort of more traditional background is i've you know i've been able to use some you know very expensive tools like SaaS and some of the sort of great visualization tools then when you go to a small company where you go i'm not even going to ask you to pay for a license fee for that i've sort of had my eyes open to open source and you know the community that exists within things like r and python there's good and bad points for each of the bits of products i think what you have to do and we we did a study when i took over the addison lee team three years ago and i asked the new head of insight to say you propose to me which product we should use and i'm not saying we only use that but that will be our first choice for analytics and data science and we'll revert to others where maybe the capabilities don't exist but to start with write down what you want the product to do and what do we want from it and then against that criteria evaluate get to a get me to a short list of products so we had SAS and we had R and we had Python and we had Tableau so we had quite a, a bit of a range in there and so we did it deliberately to have some quite different rather than just focusing on some some programming languages for example and we chose R because it was right for us at the time it doesn't mean it's right for the future but it was right for us at the time that's who to say in the future it may not necessarily be the right answer and that's we're not in a situation where we don't use anything else but we use R predominantly for sort of insight and science we use other proprietary products with our data warehouse and uh, or data lake rather from SAP because that's what it's built in so we're sort of very careful to say each of the teams has a primary tool but it's a conscious decision if you decide to use another tool set to solve a problem because it's more efficient so we've used some Python in our ETL processes because a couple of people had some Python knowledge they knew that they could solve a problem that the ETL engineers were going I don't know I don't know how to do it honestly I can't it's just not capable of doing this but I knew because I've seen it work the process be work in other technology I knew you could solve it when one of them said well actually do that with a bit of Python code we can just insert it they go let's let's do that so it was a very conscious decision so I suppose what I've seen is I've gone from signing off the paycheck for some very expensive software to signing off nothing for some really cheap software but you have to invest in training of people because you don't just recruit people but that's no different to the previous product it's very community orientated so there's lots of sharing so we've had access to algorithm things that previously we'd have to wait for the company to have developed it then put a price tag on it gone through a business case la 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 versus now going we want a machine learning algorithm that does this well let's, let's go and have a look in the community there you go there's one there let's use that it's a completely different sort of way of working and i think the analysts I've recruited like graduate analysts for 20 odd years and I can see them being quite different in their approaches to like software. So in the early days, they all came out of university. We all had used the same things. No one used them in industry. You then go into a proper job and they put you down in front of, you know, a mainframe or SQL or SaaS or something. Now they will come out. They've all done 15 different products. You say, here's one ago. I've not used it before. I've just go on YouTube. Yeah, I'm a guru now because they've all yeah. watched videos and, the, and, and, the, and they genuinely are they they can pick it up pretty damn quick watching some you know youtube videos on their way to work for example it's a completely different style of working and learning to what i'm used to which is a challenge because the danger is you're going to impart upon people your more traditional views of how you've done it and how you think it should be done versus actually looking at how they're doing and saying right hang on it actually that's more efficient or maybe sometimes maybe it's not quite as good so because one of the dangers of copying people is maybe they're not doing it right in the first place so you could be copying someone's bad habits so and what are your views and your, your approach to data governance now in your role? 
Yeah, it's interesting. We've just, after sort of two and a half years, just kicked off a bit of a, a data governance review within my area. And actually, I've used the same framework that I used previously, where we had a very simple, we, uh, I don't even know where I got it from, but I got a bit of a grid on sort of components of data governance, covering quality and stewardship, etc. We had some categories sort of scored how proficient you were. So I think at the lowest level, you were sort of in the data dungeons, I think it said. And at the highest level, you were data a grandmaster and there was some weird names in between. So what we did is I got a couple of the from the data engineering team to go through it and score where they thought we were on each of the components and then to say where did they think we needed to be in the Nirvana on each of the components. Because I said you don't need to be in this company grandmaster on every category. It's just not going to happen. And they did it and I did it for them and then we compared notes and some of them we agreed, some of them we disagreed. Where we disagreed we had a little bit of a discussion debate and we compromise and went, actually, you've got a good point. Or split the difference, let's go half. And we did that to score ourselves in where we were on the journey. And then we looked at where we thought we wanted to be. And then we created an action plan from that that says, right, so data stewardship, we're in data dungeons, we're not doing anything. Actually, where we want to be is three levels higher, right? What are the actions we can take in the next 12 months? And we did that. And then every year we went through the same process. We score ourselves again, see how we compared, come up with a list of actions. So we did it as a way of, we didn't set down like a three-year strategy for this. I spent the last 15 years in companies owned by private equity. So horizons tend to be quite short. So I tend to work to quite a short horizon, which is, look, what can we do in the next 12 months? What difference can we make? And so I used it as a way of saying, can I move the dial on data governance and our approach and how we're working with it? I didn't try and bite off the whole data governance of the whole company. I just said, look, we are the biggest data component. We're the downstream data lake. We've got the most data of any system because we've got the CRM systems data in ours and we've got the operational system and we've got all sorts of other people's systems data in our central repository. So if we've got quality issues and, and the like, we're going to know about it probably before they are actually. And therefore we should do that program on our system first. And then we can help it feed out where we find particular problems maybe with one system sending us erroneous data or not sending us good dictionary or metadata or something. That's been our approach to it rather than trying to, I think if you try to boil the ocean, it's quite hard work. I think a lot of companies made a lot of inroads this year under GDPR, so they had to go and do a lot of things that they hadn't done before. So one of the outputs we got was um, just a really nice diagram of all of our systems containing customer data, not just personal data, but just containing any elements of customer data. I could have been trying to build that for weeks and months. The fact we had this 25th of May and we had a third party coming in to help us get ready, actually they went around, put a diagram down and everyone went, great, got a diagram, let's just make sure we keep this up to date as we put new systems in because it's one of the first times I think they've had all their systems on one page. Wow. And I wanted to ask you about setting up a, a data strategy. How did you do that when you came into your current role and going into a new organization and sort of having that large amount of change going into a new place? How did you go about defining the, the data strategy that you were going to follow there? I cheated a little bit because I had quite a long notice period. So I served five and a half months of my six month notice period. So I had time in my days off. So I used my holidays. I used my free time to start getting involved, understand the current lie of the land within the team, where they'd come from, but also try and understand from the other execs I'd met what they wanted to do, where they wanted to go. And I suppose not just from talking to them, but also seeing their sort of, I suppose their 
corporate strategy? Where were they trying to take the company in the next 12 months, 36 months, for example? And from that, I'd also swallowed the book on the first 100 days of a CDA or the first 100 days of being enrolled. And I think I used that. So I didn't necessarily call it a data strategy. I called it a data analytics strategy because actually the department I was going to set up was called data analytics. And it was more about a strategy for the department and how that linked to the corporate strategy. So me saying that we're going to get our data structured, build self-serve, put in, move from contract to perm resource model, et cetera, et cetera. There had to be a, this is what we're going to do and this is why we're going to do it. And this is the value to you. So I suppose I didn't see it as an out and out data strategy. And, and it's probably what I've used in successive years. So as we do a top-down corporate strategy, three-year plan, here's our numbers. These are the constituent parts about how we're going to get there. I then look at that and then try and effectively reverse engineer and say, well, our strategy to link into that needs to be A, B, and C. But also I do get an input to that overall strategy. So if you look at the six pillars of our strategy last year or year before, although data isn't one of the pillars, there are in each of the pillars, you'll find mentions of, and we need to make sure that the data and data and data. And that's because I had already had sight and would have provided my input to that overall strategy, for example. So we didn't write a specific data strategy. Yeah, maybe I don't like the term data strategy versus saying actually what you need is some sort of strategy, whether it's data analytics or data science strategy or whatever you want to call it. Isn't it about what you're going to do with the data rather than just call it a data strategy, I suppose? And that's a really great approach, actually. Really interesting. And through your career, what did you have to learn to go up to a level of head, you know, head of insights, head of data analytics? What do you think was the some of the main things that you had to learn in order to get to that head of level? As a data person, analytics person at heart, you've got to learn when to stop talking technical, which is really hard. I had a day off today and I was playing with my eight-year-old son and we put the scale electrics up in the spare room and one of the cars wouldn't work. Clearly the last time out, they'd broken it. So I dismantled it on the kitchen table, fixed the wires, put it back together again. It worked first. Actually, it didn't work first time. It went backwards first time. I realized I'd put the wires the wrong way around. So I dismantled it again. <laughs> I didn't tell him about that, but uh, I suppose because I've always been quite technical, it is really hard in those meetings to not go to a technical level. If you look around the audience, CMO can refer to some quite technical marketing term. CIO, as soon as he wants to blind them, will start talking about cloud and something. So they will all drop into their own technical expertise. You know, CFO will drop into a little bit of accruals and blah, blah, and everyone else goes, yeah, yeah, well, whatever. That wasn't technical at all. So as soon as the CDO starts mentioning code or algorithms or statistical significance or something. I think I learned to try and put a lid on the technical. I think the other thing is, is data people, whether they're analytics, science, engineers, etc., are naturally a bit nerdy and introverted. And if you're going to rise through the levels and go to the top, you don't find many introverted people at that sort of level. You might find nerdy and they hide it very well, but you won't find introverted. They will probably have to be more outgoing. They'll have to present. I quite like doing these sort of things, actually. You know, I do breakfast events. I do interviews and stuff. and I quite like talking about it. Put me on the stage at the front. I know I have to do it. I'm doing one in a couple of weeks' time and I'm sort of thinking, I've sort of written some material. Is it going to be any good? Some of my old friends and colleagues have said, yeah, we're coming to see you. Ah, oh, thanks. Uh, you know. <laughs> No pressure. Stay off my birthday, so I need to sort of avoid having too much to drink the night before. And I think it's just you realise you have to be of a slightly more extrovert character because you have to be able to lead as well. So I suppose that was the other thing I saw is you weren't just 
the manager, you weren't just the head of, actually, you are a leader of a function. So I was running, I wasn't just running a team meeting, I was running departmental meetings, I was running strategy sessions for, you know, commercial director or whatever. So I was getting involved in things which actually were sort of getting further and further away from, from data. And so you have to be, someone said that you you can't stay in that low level technical expertise and get to a senior level. It just, it's rarely going to exist. Yeah, I mean, clearly, if you're the chief data scientist at company X and there are a few, then you're probably still going to be allowed to carry on doing a little bit of highly technical on the side. And then you've got to be able to talk less technical. You know, and that's what I do. I mean, I earlier this evening, I was writing a little bit of code, trying to work something out. And then I was writing a proposal for somebody in the team to do some analysis. And then I was writing a proposal for a couple of the directors on my view on what we should do on global reporting or something. And so trying to go up and down, up and down, it's quite hard because sometimes you get it wrong and you go into too much detail. So I think that was the main thing. Two one thing, things for me were about trying to be less technical really hard and not being so introverted i think one of the things that helped with that we did a um i've done it quite a few times with my data teams is we did so a few years ago we did myers-briggs which most people have done sort of the psychology study and the more recent one we've done is i think it's called insights and discovery which the data people love because one of the outputs you get is four lego blocks and you can put the lego blocks into different orientation they're different colors and the colors tell you about what you're like and you stack the colors as to what you're more or less like on any one day so yellow is or green is like what do you call it touchy-feely wishy-washy that's hr all the way up to red which is sort of leaders what they call it i think it says be brief be gone is there. <laughs> And the data people are all very blue because blue is give me all the detail, tell me everything, and then I'll work it out and tell you what the answer is. And when you do these studies with your team, they play games and they get you to stand on a big colored wheel and they show you after a psychometric questionnaire where everyone sits. And you look at people and go, so yeah, I'm so I'm blue with a bit of red and you're green. We're not going to, when we say the same thing, we don't mean the same thing. And when I did it in my last team, it was a real moment for a couple of my managers who went, no, I get it. When I send you my report on something and I go yeah it's all grey yeah we'll be done in a few weeks you come back and say when will it be delivered have you done this have you done that because you're very much detail when is each each task going to be done they said we're not managing you very well because we're not communicating to you in the language that you need to understand where something is I said yeah I I get it now as well I can see that I probably guessed your character was more green but just seeing it that you're very green but actually also means you're very good at other things so they were very good at team management resolving problems and actually they've gone on to become a head of data they had a technical background but they've got a green profile which actually makes them a really good fit for that because they're both technical slightly extroverts and they're good at managing people ideal combination of of skills i think thanks for for that so i'd like to um, go into some rapid fire questions and Mm -hmm. ask you what excites you the most about this field why do you love it I think because someone can give you a problem and you can solve it with maths, with data, whatever. You may not need a huge amount. You don't always need the biggest brain or greatest bit of technology, whatever. Someone else, generally, they're coming to you with a problem. You're solving it for them and telling them how to do something, why something happened. Surely that's a great job, isn't it? You know, it's better than being a Premier League footballer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not really. I love that you went there. <laughs> And what do you see as the main current challenges in the industry? I think um, we're getting up to and over maybe the hype cycle of the latest fad, which around people is sort of the, the whole data science thing. I mean, I, in a way, I'm, I'm quite glad 
the data science disturbance has occurred because actually it does allow you to create, I think, if you properly manage it, a sort of a niche group that have got a skill set, a product set that actually we did need. Because what happens is the analysts become a bit used to their way, setting their ways, watered down. And data analysts, when I joined the industry 25 years ago, were just analysts. Then they became data analysts, differentiating from systems analysts. Then they became insight analysts. And then there was a few other names and they become data scientists. And unless the actual skill set they've got is very different, they're just the same as they were. So when you see the kids coming out of university, they've done a computer science degree, they've done a data science master's, they're coming out and they need a job. But actually, a lot of companies need someone that is more of an insight analyst, for example, that has data science capabilities, not 100%. Equally, there are companies out there want to employ 40 data scientists. And I go, good luck to you, because you're going to have to be pretty inventive. You're going to have to grow your own. You're going to have to. And one of the warning, one of the things we've seen is a lot of people exiting those companies after a year because they didn't get to do data science. So I'd much rather, I don't call it the fads, but these new iterative generations of it remain in the in the niche area. So because when you meet a true out and out data scientist, and I'm talking about people who've been doing this more than five years, they are brilliant. They're brilliant at solving the problem. They're not always got the best skills at communicating it, but they are brilliant at solving the problem, the visualization, the manipulation of the data, machine learning models, all that stuff. They're brilliant at. The others, no offense, I think are clouding it a little bit. So that's my sort of one of the moments that's sort of disturbing me. And I sort of want to see us. We're always going to be, there's going to be some hype. You know, I went through big data and out the other side. They're always around. Just get used to it. If you've not seen a hype cycle, maybe you don't realize until you've seen successive hype cycles. It's a bit like if you've never seen an economic boom bust and boom again, you always think that you've gone bust and you're never going to, it's never going to happen again. You're never going to survive. And actually when you come out into boom again and then go bust again, fortunately these things come with age, I'm afraid that you suddenly realize you will see these cycles occur. And what do you see as the, the future challenges in the industry? I think the future, I think um, the people stuff is is worrying me. I mean, I think it's got better in the last few years. The universities, I think, have stepped up. I think industry has stepped up in terms of being more inventive about the way in which you work with sort of the new resources. So even us as a small company, we've got um, a former analyst who's gone off to do a PhD. He's actually using our data, anonymized to do one of his PhD studies. We've got an intern for three months in his master's, and we're going to do it again next year because actually you get to do a bit of try before you buy, get to actually help them with a project. And actually, some of the things they have to solve for the project we gave them, we've learned from because we probably would have come across that problem in an application, for example, that he had to solve, but we just haven't come across it yet. We're only small and yet we can do those sort of things. So I think the resource side is still difficult. There are people out there with a lot of money funding startups, needing data scientists, paying silly money. And it's actually bringing the base salary up but the, the sort of salary of like, you know, manager and head of is not really going anywhere. And it's crunching the two together, probably more so than I think I've, I've probably ever seen. At some point, they're going to collide because they're not really, you're not really seeing these grow in the same way. I'm trying to think how long ago it was when we saw the sort of e-commerce bubble burst, wasn't it? The digital bubble burst that I remember seeing digital analysts, digital manager coming out, two years experience on 50 grand and he'd come out of eBay, be made redundant. You're going, right, no offense. One, if you're any good, you can get made redundant. Two, you're going back into the rest of the market at 50 grand where the market will only take 40. So you're going to have to accept a pay cut because you saw his salary, the salary done that. And it's like, that's that's not normal. You're not actually, that's not the market rate. And I think that's what we'll have is that we'll have a little bit of a readjustment, I think. 
I agree, it has to come. This has been super interesting and really, really great. So one last question. What is one piece of advice that you would like to give listeners that are coming up in their career in this industry? So I think the things I, where I've learned most or had the most opportunity from was actually spending time networking. So I used to probably 15 plus years now. So everything from LinkedIn to, as I said, breakfast clubs to evening to if there are a software provider. I mean, a lot of it started when you had software providers that you were working with that would invite you to things, then you meet other people and then you attend more things. But you have to become selective because it's, it is a snowballing effect. So you'll get invited. It's not unusual for me to get an invite for a day in, and it was a day in September. I had five invites for an event on the same evening of the 19th of September. It was ridiculous. And I'd said yes to one, and I will not, oh, that's a better offer. That's at the Shard, or oh, I'll, I'll drop them for that. No, it's you've said yes, you stick to it. So I think what I've done is also got a range of networks. So, you know, now there are Slack groups, there are different types and different, I've been to meetups, I haven't been to a hackathon yet, might be too old for that but you know never know might have to get my code out but there are different types of events where you meet different types of people and you'll probably therefore have different types of conversation and I think the reason that was important to me was because I'd chosen or was chosen to stay at the AA for a long time there was a danger that people think well you've only ever worked to one company with no experiences and I'd say look AA is massive there's nothing wrong with staying in a company working your way around the company working your way up the company getting a good image but actually the way you ensure that you you've got market knowledge, you've got connections, is by networking. And it is a snowballing effect. As I said, you go to a conference, you get invited to something else, you pick and choose. You can't always go and listen. At some point, you will have to contribute and present. I sometimes found the easiest way is I, I started going on to panels because I quite liked getting on a panel, be three or four of you. You might have very differing views on a subject matter. You're only there for 20, 25 minutes. It's a bit not quite risky. You know, when they're open to the audience, you never know what quite what question you're going to get. And the microphone it makes you think on your feet, which as a very introverted person is like, that's like the world's worst thing to do to me. So I think that networking thing outside of your company and outside of your industry verticals so and not just, oh, shall I just move job every five minutes to get that industry experience? Well, you can get knowledge and awareness from talking to people because also you never know when, I don't know, example for me would have been when we were looking at a piece of software. I remember I'd met somebody that had just made a decision and they'd implemented it in the last year. So I would just call them up and said, look, can I buy your coffee? I'd like to understand what your experience has been like. We've made the choice, but I just like to learn so that we don't. And I do reciprocal. I quite often get asked to, can we just ask you some questions? And often uh, suppliers have put me in that situation where they said, look, we just like your honesty we know that if it's good you'll say it's good if it's bad you'll say it's bad give them an even explanation so they at least they know what they're getting into and what they need to be sort of wary of so i think there are for me the networking thing is quite important particularly if you're trying to rise up i think through the data ranks because there isn't a professional career you can't qualify as an accountant and therefore be a cfo give an example i said to somebody recently said um i was um talking in front of some graduates. And I said, uh, I applied for my first job. I never applied for a job ever since. I said, because actually my second job came because two people had left, knew me and had recommended me for a role. They approached me. The next job came because a boss had left and he came looking for me. My next job was a boss had left and he was now somewhere else and he'd recommended me. You know, it's like, hang on a minute. I just realized I only have applied for my first job. You know, I don't didn't have to go through that whole, you know, recruitment type process. But maybe I'm different. Maybe lots of other people want to move every two or three years and earn nice big recruitment fees every five minutes when they do it, but it's not for me if I'm honest. 
But that's such a great point that if you network and stay in contact with your industry, you get different perspectives that helps you round yourself out as a as a professional. And then you can stay in one company for a long time, tackling new challenges there and being fed essentially new information from the industry. And then you have excellent opportunities where you're constantly poached. That's the dream. Mate, this has been absolutely fascinating, terrific, extremely valuable. Thank you so much for taking the time and for doing okay. the interview. Boost your data science career with skills that count. James Cook University's 100% online Master of Data Science is one of Australia's fastest. Study while you work and focus on just one subject at a time. Visit online.jcu.edu.au for more information. As data scientists, we're always looking for ways to gather more data and to understand our customers better. Firebox, do just that. With Firebox, you can easily create a quiz for your app, website, or blog. These quizzes are used to generate leads, educate, or engage your customers. Check them out today. That's Firebox with a Y, so F-Y-R-E-B-O-X.com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.